welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar interview leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here are your hosts, Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar. All right, in this week's episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, Ethan Gar and I chat with Janusz Klink, the Vice President of Product Management and Design at Thrive Market. So Thrive is a subscription-based online grocery delivery service on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. And Janusz is all about furthering that mission with the rigorous test-learn approach to growth that we all know and love here on the podcast. So what stood out for you, Ethan? Yeah, I, I think it is that discipline and rigor that Yanis is building in his team. It's just super admirable. Um, he brings this depth of experience from roles at companies like Google, eBay, Jet, and Walmart. Um, and it just seems to have informed this really smart, organized, just well thought out approach. And I think at the heart of that approach is building test velocity, which you and I are really passionate about. And I just love that formula he shared, Sean, velocity times win rate times average impact equals growth. Yeah, I can't believe that I hadn't heard that expressed as that particular formula. I asked him; he was the one who came up with that formula, and he said, "No, he's he's heard others talk about it." But he should, I he love should it. have taken he should have taken credit for it. <laughs> well, I'm glad he didn't. So I'm gonna, I'm going to repeat that. So velocity times win rate times average impact equals growth. And it's really hard to argue with that one. It just shows you that the more you optimize your testing approach, the more effective you can become. And I love that he talks about velocity in terms of learning. So it's learning velocity. Testing is important, but if you're not learning, it doesn't matter. So to me, that's where teams really need to build their momentum and find their stride. And he says that there is no failing in A-B testing, just learning. So I love that as well. Um, you know, you need to embrace that if you're a growth leader. That, that should be your mantra, that just evangelize that. There is no failing in A-B testing, just learning. And uh, testing takes risk. It's just, it's natural. It takes risk. And, uh, with, uh, with risk is, um, you're not going to be taking risk if you don't have that psychological safety that that's so critical to taking a risk. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, I think that touches on one of the sort of bigger themes that we explored in the conversation, in the conversation, which is language really matters in leading teams. You know, there's some great dialogue in this about not using the word roadmap or why Jonas doesn't like to use the word roadmap why process can be a dirty word, um, and so on. And I think it really does make a difference. You got to choose your words wisely because it can really decide how excited a team, how enthusiastic a team is going to be about what is a, you know, can be a, a, a hard process to, to, to make work. But, you know, maybe the thing I like the most about this conversation, Sean, is just part of the reason why language matters is that Jonas believes that growth is supposed to be fun. Um, you know, he wants that rigor around experimentation, of course, but he wants it to result in a culture where people feel like their ideas can come to life and they contribute at all points along the way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, this balancing act that we always have to, to keep in place where, you know, processes, it's, it, there, there's a negative uh, connotation to processes yeah. and they can really drag down morale. But I just, I like the way that he thinks about it is he's, he's trying to keep things lightweight. He's trying to stay focused on the goal and, and process should serve reaching that goal and shouldn't, shouldn't be all about the process. It should be all about the goal. And 
in his case, it really seems to be working. So the business has accelerated. They've got uh, 1.2 million members. And uh, the really impressive thing to me was the revenue number, 2 billion with a B uh, in revenue. That's that's uh, not, not a lot of companies reach those sorts of yeah. numbers. And so I'm super excited to see what happens as he and his team continue to stoke that fire because they really do have an approach and, and a big mission that tells me that they can do really big things with this business. Yeah, me too. I, I can't imagine that over the next few years, like more and more people are going to become aware of Thrive and excited about what they're doing. It's it's a, it, it was a cool conversation. It's a cool company. He's definitely a really um, impressive leader, and I, I really like. I think I, I don't know about you, but I felt like I learned a ton. So uh, yeah, so should we yeah. jump into it? Absolutely, let's do it. Right. Hey, Jonas, welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, we're very excited to have you on. And I'm joined by my co-host, Ethan. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Sean. Hey, Jonas. Good to be with both of you. I'm excited, to, I'm excited for this one, as always. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, Jonas, you are the Vice President of Product Management and Design at Thrive Market. And i uh, I'm sure that there's going to be some from our audience that are familiar with Thrive Market, but for those who aren't, can you give us a quick introduction to the company? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so the company is still sitting on a startup stage. It's been around since 2014, so relatively mature as a business as it works, right? We've delivered, um, you know, in the online grocery space, we're focused on sustainability and healthy living and bringing, bringing that access really to everyone, not just in the areas where it's already popularized, um, say LA and, and New York and so on. But really important to us is also bringing it to food deserts and, and areas where you have a lot less access to, to healthy and sustainable food options. So the company has been doing great. Uh, they've delivered about 18 million um, member orders, generated over $2 billion in revenue so far. And, and we've grown now to a size where we're just about 1.2 million um, members at, at any given point of time. Oh, that's amazing. And and maybe a little bit more explanation just on, um, so it, it's delivery of groceries or um, yeah, like what's, what's the, what's the actual <laughs> business? Doing? That's right. So, so it's a, it's a subscription based online grocery model. So essentially okay. you, you sign up typically for an annual membership, um, which then gives you up to an average of about 30% discounts on um, all non-GMO organic, heavily vetted brands um, that have all been um, hand-selected really um, by the team to make sure that they are developed in, in alignment with, with our values and, as well as uh, those of our members. You know, you can look at it as, as, a, as an online version of, a, of, you know, a given healthy food store like Whole Foods or, or so on, but with a much broader reach and, and, and effort and even more ways that our members can come in and, and really shop in ways that are aligned with what they're looking to do. So we, we, we supply um, tools for you to shop by um, a little bit over 90 different uh, diets and values. So it's everything from, you know, vegan, vegetarianism, keto, Whole30, to um, women-owned BIPOC-owned businesses, to um, you know, recyclable packaging, um, regenerative agriculture, whatever have you, right? So it, it, it's really a great space for someone who's passionate, not about just their own health, but also about the health of the planet. So is it, is it a reasonable analogy to say sort of as like a, a cloud kitchen is to a, to a typical restaurant where 
they're not setting up a physical restaurant. The whole thing is is for delivery that you're, you're kind of the same in the grocery space where you don't have a physical grocery store, but you have a kind of central distribution center uh, and, and it's all ordering that way or am I missing? Yeah. Something yeah. So at the, at the end of the day, right, it's, it's, a, as I said, a subscription based model um, up front. And then it, once you're a member, it's essentially a, a pretty conventional e-commerce uh, experience where you build your carts. Um, we have a, a very powerful subscription state program we call AutoShip. Um, that uh, is really just meant for for you to have the convenience of of shopping at at your own leisure, or you know we will send you your favorite products you know based on your your own curation as well as our recommendations um, on a monthly basis or whatever cadence that that you determine is right for you and your family. And then, do you partner with kind of organic grocery stores, or or it's it, you're you're sourcing everything, and and like where do where do the actual uh, how does the actual like get, getting the physical goods to people work? It's it's a combination. So we have some some larger recognizable brands again, you know, very much aligned with our values. We have a very rigorous vetting process where not only. You know, non-GMO organic and, and these 90 plus different diets and values, but it's also over 500 ingredients that we just never want to see in any of our products. So it's really a combination of, you know, if they're an existing product that we feel meets those that quality bar, um, we'll set up partnership with them. But in many cases, we will source um, our, our products directly from local farmers and so on as much as possible as well. Okay, cool. I think I've got a handle on it, Ethan. Uh, <laughs> any other clarification you want to you want to yeah. try to cover? Uh, no, Jonas. What I was uh, I wanted to dive into a little bit about your story and how you got here because um, you and I spoke and uh, it was really fascinating. You've worked for some very interesting companies and in some interesting roles, but I know you're relatively new to the role. But what was it that got you really excited about applying your experience from those uh, those from those roles here? And maybe just give us a little background on on yourself as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, it, it's it's really just really felt like a homecoming where the kind of 15 plus years that I've spent primarily in the e-commerce industry uh, all kind of feel like it's led up to this moment for me. So, you know, if I go way back when I, I come from a computer science background, I, I tell my engineering team I used to do honest work back in the day where I'd actually write code and and dig into the technology before I moved over to the to the to the quote unquote dark side of product management. Um, but but really, you know, I, I come by ways of starting at the technology company Google, in, in that case, moving into more technical product management. And then um, got approached uh, by by eBay um, to go work on on their accessibility program, which is really was really my my first love. Uh, that's where I did my thesis, working with primarily with those visually impaired, but really across any special access needs. Um, and I was able to go into eBay and apply that skill set into e-commerce, and then gradually hand off the reins to the accessibility program and go deeper into the e-commerce side of things. So, so I've had the good fortune of first being able to work for the biggest marketplace on the e-commerce uh, through eBay, then for the biggest the biggest retailer, because uh, I went to Walmart after that by ways of, uh, of Jet.com, a startup that they had acquired. Um, and, and really, once I get got towards the end of my Walmart tenure, I was really looking for something where I could do something that felt more, um, even more mission driven, where I could really get my hands on on aligning kind of the superpowers I feel like I bring professionally to the table with doing things um, that I was also just very, very passionate about. And, and there's two things more than anything 
health and fitness, um, especially for myself and my family, as well as the environment, sustainability. I'm, I, I am that weird guy who will come back from walking the dogs with uh, a handful of recycling and, and so on, um, cleaning up the neighborhood just naturally. So, so I spent time a couple of years at, at WW Weight Watchers, helping stand up their e-commerce best practices. And that's really where I got exposed to uh, subscription-based models as well. And so then when this opportunity came up with Thrive Market and I, I met with Nick and Sasha, the co-founders, uh, this, this, just, this just clicked because now everything felt like it had come together where they wanted to bring in someone with a lot of, lot of experience, uh, both within e-commerce and subscription, but also just really to stand up to the product management best practices. And so it gave me an opportunity to just, just come in for the first time, really, truly be able to do product 100% the way that I've always been wanting to do it. Um, I'm, I'm a nerd. I consider product management the craft. I read, I discuss, I, I listen, uh, anything I can do to learn more about product management. And then I warn my team that I you know, intend to use them as guinea pigs to, to test out these best practices in, in, a, in a practical setting. Um, and so I kind of built my brand of product over the past 15 years. And, and as I said, with Thrive Market, it just, just all clicked where I could bring my love of e-commerce and, and more lately subscription together with my love of health and, and, and the planet and, and then also a healthy amount of, of nerdiness around uh, product <laughs> management standing it up from scratch here, really. I'm just curious with that, like, was there any, can you point to any, you know, single experience at one of those companies where you're like, I didn't know how valuable it would be at the time, but I bring it to work every day now and it, it's really helped me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, it's it's funny when you start working with big companies like this because there's a lot of things that work really, really well um, on scale um, and when you have almost unlimited resources. I mean, for, for those of you who work for big companies, for some reason, even if you're the, the world's largest retail employer in Walmart, it always feels like you don't have enough, enough people to do all the things you want to do, right? But I think that... One of the things that, that I took away was really that um, there, there's no excuse, really, whatever stage company you are, whatever size you are, there's no excuse not to do things the right way and, and aspire to apply some of the best practices that are out there. I think that a lot of companies will trade um, being busy and, and pr producing a lot of activity from really trying to distill things down and looking at the core of a problem. And, and undervaluing a, a lot what product management brings to the table in terms of truly understanding that there's a problem here worth solving for your design targets. Um, and I think a lot of companies will just kind of rush headlong in and, and as I said, confuse activity for progress. And, and so that, that's a takeaway that, that I try to play, play every single day. This came up, we just had an all hands earlier today where people were asking about the classical iron triangle, you know, fast versus cheap versus good. And I think that looking at learning velocity and, and really thinking about um, how do you incrementally and cheaply build confidence around an idea and just kind of graduating it from from stage to stage and, and only doing as much work as is needed um, for you to be able to prove or disprove your current hypothesis. Uh, that's an art form as much as it's a science. And, and, and it just, this just makes all of this deliciously fun to me. Now, and I imagine, especially in a, in a company where there is that perception of unlimited resources, 
the desire to try to get to uh, validation of a hypothesis with the least amount of work and the least amount of resources, maybe there's a little less pressure to do that. Um, but I know it sounds like it sounds like uh, even if there's the perception of unlimited resources, you were still you were still faced with uh, resource constraints there. But do do you find in a in a startup environment that uh, Try, trying to validate hypotheses, it's just more natural to uh, focus on the the fastest, cheapest, easiest way to validate a hypothesis. I, I found that I mean, obviously, I have a data point of one, right? This is the first kind of true startup because when I was with Jet.com, they had already been acquired by Walmart. So although it was still kind of a startup like environment in our day to day work, it was not executing truly as a startup. And I think what's been refreshing coming into the startup world is that. Uh, there isn't a lot of these preconceived notions that maybe come, you know, with certain companies feeling like we got it figured out. You know, we established product market fit 20 years ago or 70 years ago, and we got this down. And all we need to do is just keep making things better. And as long as we keep making things better at enough scale, we will keep making more money, which is, which is in many cases true. Um, but, but it just, it, it makes the environment kind of stale. And, and when you're part of a smaller company like this, where you come in and, and I felt like I had some pretty radical ideas that, you know, Nick and Sasha, the co-founders, at least from their perspective, they had never been exposed to before. They just essentially said, yeah, we hired you because you're, you're the expert in the room. So go do it. Right. And, and that was just incredibly refreshing. Many other big companies, you know, I would have to cut through like three months of red tape to be able to prove why my model might be better than what we had done previously for five years, 20 years. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious on that hiring. Um, you have a pretty unique title uh, being uh, VP of product and design. I'm curious if they were hiring for that or they were hiring for just one. And you said, yeah, guys, it really makes sense to combine them both. Like, how how did the decision to call the role VP of, of product and and design uh, come about? Um, I think some some of it out of necessity, and and some of it out of out of foresight. I, I think that there's there's a lot of overlap between um, to me the UX design practice and the and the product management practice because at the end of the day, you are trying through different mediums to you know, essentially advance an idea or advance an hypothesis to, as I said, through various stages of, of, of tests, right? And, and I think bringing the, the product and UX team together for, for an organization of our size made, made a lot of sense. Um, it, the, the team was reporting into to Sasha, the co-founder, who was also the CTO before. So it was really a necessity, I think, for them to no, they both both wanted to kind of up level the role and bring in someone who had done product before, but then also have someone who had the time to really invest in the team and really grow, especially the ways of working, but also you know grow the talent into in, into really its full potential. So I think having the team working really closely together, where effectively each of my PMs has a UX counterpart and 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 they're paired up as as a atomic unit almost. Um, and they really look at two sides of the same coin where typically the, the product person will, will spend more time on the quantitative angle and, and the, the UX person will spend more time on the qualitative angle. They also own doing user research. We don't, we don't have, we're not large enough to have our own user research standalone team yet, um, which actually has turned out to be pretty good uh, because it, it avoids kind of creating another team that 
can often become a, a bottleneck. I think every organization I've been part of has, um, whenever there's a standalone user research team, the inevitable discussion is how can we possibly get more people on the user experience side? So when these things become everyone's responsibility, you know, the, the UX designers in many cases are pulling data as well um, on the quantitative side. I think it, it brings much more well-rounded individuals to the table where everyone is, is showing up steeped in, in customer insights. Um, and, and it's actually worked really, really well together. I mean, it, it's, in full transparency, there, were, there was some nervousness on my side because while I have worked really, really closely with design and, and UX my entire life, um, it, it's this is the first really formal um, experience I've, I've had with truly having the team reporting directly into me. I've had kind of dotted line relationships and so on before. Sure. Do you, do you uh, have a separate growth organization then, or is that kind of rolled in what you guys are doing, or how, how does that fit? So we, the way we've got it set up is that we have um, we have the the product team that is focused on growth. The two two of our pods or or scrum teams we call them pods um, are are leaning into growth pretty much full time, both acquisition and retention, and they work very closely with the business side of the house uh, that are managing more. Our, our social media campaigns and so on. So they're, they're in short, they're responsible for bringing the eyeballs to the site. We are primarily responsible for turning those eyeballs into, into happy and, and, and paying subscribers. Um, but we work extremely closely um, on a week to week, almost day to day basis to make sure that ideas get cross-pollinated and that, that the story that is told is consistent for everyone who's coming in and going through the whole funnel. I just wanted to go back. Um, I thought it's interesting when you said each product manager has a UX counterpart and they work very closely together, um, which seems like a really smart way to do things. You mentioned earlier that um, one of the keys with experimentation is not trying to do everything, but trying to focus on the right things uh, to do. Do you think having those that tight coupling between design and product allows those teams to kind of slow down and focus on what's important more? Um, do you think that's a big part of that? I think so. Um, we've tried to really kind of, in, in the root of it, democratize the ideation. So we have, we have, we have you know, weekly instances where the whole team is involved, including engineering, QA, analytics, and, and the business side of the house. So ideas come from everywhere, but ultimately the PM and the UX uh, individuals are responsible for making sure that there's a very healthy idea funnel that the flow in and especially in member growth where that's a high velocity testing area. Um, and so it, it puts, it puts a good amount of pressure on the team and, and, and on the individuals who are involved in there that they are, you know, both kind of create creatively inclined, but then also really steeped and understanding exactly what's happening and, and where, what does the competitive landscape look like? What does our funnel look like? Where is traffic coming? Where where is it leaking? So it's more of a sieve than it is the funnel, um, and and it takes a certain kind of mindset and a certain kind of individual. But I think pairing up the oftentimes more creatively inclined uh, UX individual with uh, the oftentimes more you know data inclined um, PMs has been been a really successful combination because to me the quantitative and qualitative insights go hand in hand, right? The, the, the quant insights tell you 
what's happening and the qual insights and the designs can help you uncover why that is happening right and and without having both together you're really just seeing part of the picture right so so to me this feels like a very natural pairing and, and it's worked extremely well yeah, it seems like a, a good pairing also because it's funny, a few weeks ago, Sean and I spoke in front of a very large CPG company. And one of the things, I think in one of the questions that came up, I think, Sean, you mentioned it, you said, you know, often it seems like the two places where you run into bottlenecks with experimentation are data and design. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, those the people there don't play nicely with others. It's just that those are interesting resources to have to tap into. So it seems like being able to pair those together the way you're doing it um, might actually sort of unlock a lot of uh, opportunities. But I, I think one of the key and one of the reasons for that, I think, is that and I experienced this myself, too, is that, um, you know, design is always balancing this, you know, this this tight walking this tightrope with um, get it done fast and do it right. Like really like high quality, you know, do the research, do it right versus get it out there because the product manager is saying, we want to run this test next Tuesday. Do you, how, like, how do you, how have you looked at that as a whole and managed that? Um, and, and how, what, what do you think is, is key to finding, to sort of finding that balance? Yeah, no, this is a great question, Nathan. Thank you. It's, I think at, at the end of the day, right. It, it, it's there's a couple of important building blocks here one is to have a very clearly articulated direction that you're ultimately working towards this is the case where i will actually use the the expression north star uh you'll find me a bit of a stickler for some of these terms because i feel like they've been overloaded and overused many times to me a north star is something you're you're always working towards just like the north star in, in the night sky uh, but you're never actually going to get there. Um, and that's absolutely the case with our, our growth funnels and our growth scenarios where we do need to have a very good sense of where our current hypotheses are taking us uh, because otherwise you're kind of just led by the nose uh, of, of every single A-B test and you're you're operating very in a very reactive manner. So that's one. Two is to make sure that you have a really good foundation to stand on. So part of what the team is working on is to have a, a very clean design system so that the work we do, especially since it's moving very fast, is consistent. Uh, but always, of course, as with any design system, allowing for extensions of it. So, so the pods, everyone is, 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 is empowered to go and, and suggest new design patterns without slowing down. And then we can think about if it's a, if it's a pattern that should live within the design system or if it was a one-off. And then, and then three, as you're, as you're building these experiences and you're trying to move really fast, one of the things that, that I think is really important that, that I emphasized a lot coming in was kind of the importance of, of um, the scientific rigor around A-B testing. Because especially um, in my experience, I love, love all my designer friends, love the ones that I've been working with and, and the, the, on the team. But it, it's very tempting to apply kind of the scout rule when you come in and you're like, oh, you know, I can touch A, B and C. I can move these things around and I can leave this whole thing a better place. And you end up with, with tests, unfortunately, that are not clean. Right. And so one of the things I had to really kind of emphasize coming in was we we're going to have have 
you know, discipline around our testing, and we're going to have it be hypothesis-driven testing where the hypothesis needs to be clearly articulated. We actually put the hypothesis in directly in Figma as well. So everyone is very clear whenever they see a design, there should be a hypothesis right next to it. And then the designs are meant to only touch as much to prove or disprove the hypothesis. Nothing more, nothing less, right? And, and in some cases, you know, if we if we think that there are things that are innocent, we might make the exceptions. But I've seen it time and again through my experience that whenever you make changes that feel that look very innocent, that's where you get yourself into trouble. And then you end up with 15 changes and you have a test that came back flat or negative in your A-B testing. Um, and you don't know which of those 15 innocent changes that drove the negativity. And, and I've told the team at the end of the day, you cannot fail on A-B testing. In fact, we classify our A-B tests as either a win or a learning. Um, there's no losses, even if they're negative. Uh, the only way you can fail on A-B testing, in my perspective, is if you didn't learn anything, right? And and, um, and so, so I encourage the team to kind of take risk and be bold, but also be disciplined in, in how we execute and, and, the, and subsequently how we design for these tests. Mm -hmm. Any tricks to to keeping the velocity at a high pace? I, I've in in my current role, um, I'm, I've been running up against some big projects that uh, you know, big 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 tests, but kind of projects behind them that clog up the works a bit. I'm I'm curious if uh, if if you've found workarounds so that so that you have a have a consistent release of experiments kind of week to week. Yeah, we, we try to, some of it has to do with, with mindset and just kind of setting the expectation for the team. It's, it's a small team, but we're still, we still set the expectation early on that, that, that a week is just about the longest investment we will put on, on most tests because the, the hypothesis should be easy enough so that you can you can run it and, and articulate it very clearly and, and build the test very quickly. And so setting that mindset, I think, goes a long way. And, and then we, we, we stick to that and because then when we do grooming, when, when the team, when the engineering team is story pointing some of these tests, if the estimates come back and they're over a week, that just that triggers a little part of our, our process that essentially then we have a, a broader conversation. That doesn't mean we don't run tests that require more than a week worth of investment, but we do so, uh, we take that very seriously and, and we make sure that these you know, one week tests don't turn into two, three, you know, without any kind of conversation, right? So I think I think a mindset and then building it into your process that you you have the right kind of triggers and alerts whenever you deviate from that process goes goes a long way. And then also um, the, the other part is just, you know, really also making sure that we build confidence incrementally um, so that another another kind of latent muscle we had to really practice coming in was that, and this is, again, this goes out to my engineering friends, which I also love, and I worked with tons of, tons of talented people there, but having been in that world myself, you tend to want to build for scale, for security, for all the bells and whistles on the first version, and that's where you also have to be really rigorous. And, and that's where the PM needs to be very clear and say, for our V1, and I intentionally don't call it MVP because that's another heavily overloaded term, but for your V1, what is it that you're actually trying to learn? Let's not over-engineer it beyond what you're trying to learn, right? Because again, 
it's all about learning velocity to me and and don't don't tell the executives of the team but the the wins we get on the business side is a is a, is a happy cherry on top for me i'm really in it for the learnings because that's what's actually going to advance our 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 members experience and, and our backlog and, and constantly be feeding new ideas and then if we move the business forward in the process, that's great too. Yeah, I think the wins are a function of the learning anyway. If you, the the more learning you have, and the more that you actually capture and understand that learning, the more likely that you're going to be able to decide on on experiments that actually provide a pro- positive impact to the growth metrics that you're trying to move. And so, focusing focusing only on wins, I don't think actually gets you anywhere, but focusing on learning is more likely to result in a lot more wins. So, um. yeah. And also holding the leadership team accountable um, in, in reverse. So we have a couple of Slack channels to be used internally. One where a product brief gets posted, uh, or in the case of the tasks, just a very simple template with the problem statement, the hypothesis, and proposed solution and the variance that we're going to run. But in, in other cases where the proposal is more complex, it's more of a written out um, written out product brief. And then we have another channel where we do UX reviews where the, the broader team as well as other stick, key stakeholders can get tagged and pulled in. Uh, we'll give feedback on the designs. It's very important um, that neither of those are blocking channels um, so that the, the PM who posts most often to the brief channel and the designer who posts to the UX review channel, that they are empowered to go in and say, okay, I haven't heard anything here for a little bit. We're going to be grooming today. You know, Speak now or forever hold your peace, right? And that's our commitment also as a leadership team because that's also an area where you can identify bottlenecks, right? And 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 easily become a, oh, you know, you need to go through the peanut gallery to get something out there. So no, we hired smart people. Um, we've empowered them. And we if we don't make the time to review the work, we're just going to have to let them do their work, right? So I'm curious, uh, you, you really, uh, you touched upon the testing rigor, which I think is super important. And I think, yeah, I think, Sean's question uh, also alludes to the fact that sometimes uh, earlier question that sometimes it's very hard to stick to that rigor. Sometimes there is that second, uh, there's that one little thing you want to include, you don't want to wait for. Um, and I think that those, those are always the, the real life challenges you have to, you have to deal with when it comes to experimentation. But I'm curious, um, in terms of when you say, you know, when you talk about, um, this commitment to hypothesis and and the only failed test is the one that you don't get a learning on. Has there been one or two common reasons? Have you had those failures where you didn't get the learning that you say it's usually because we didn't do this? Yeah, yeah, that, that happened um, in one of the product areas quite frequently in, in the first quarter actually. And uh, it really, the failure to learn just came from essentially that we we felt like we had some pretty well-informed hypothesis around customer pain points um, where, you know, in, in full transparency, as we were trying to overcome the cold start problem with that team's backlog, uh, we felt, okay, going in and following industry best practices and focusing um, testing um, of those industry best practices in area of high reach that we were going to be able to supplement um, going to to do the work, which we were doing in parallel to truly identify customer pain points and and go after those opportunities. That is not a mistake I will ever make again. 
um, <laughs> because it, most of the tests essentially just came back came back flat. And so that didn't mean technically they wouldn't learn anything. It, as, as an aggregate, we learned that we were operating in areas where we thought there were pain points for customers because they, they are well-known pain points in the rest of the e-commerce world. It just happened to be that it just didn't apply at the same scale to the Thrive Markets members that we're applying it to. So I think in those cases, the, the meta learning from that was that we, a, we need to conclude our, our customer research. You really need to, to drive with insights. And so I won't make that mistake again. I, I thought I could outsmart myself. Um, and B, we need to make bigger swings. Right? We need to go and and really provoke a signal. And, and the guidance I've given to the team heading into this second quarter is, let's make sure that we have a few tests that I don't care if they are 10% positive or 10% negative, but let's get out of this kind of flatlining that we've been operating in um, because it just it just sends a strong signal to me that we have yet to really uncover what our customers truly care about when it comes to this experience, right? And and it was such a such a fantastic insight and and you know a humbling learning opportunity for me in the process as well. With with that commitment to trying to keep tests to under a week, do you find that those sometimes run run against each other where it's like, hey, we want to take bigger swings, um, but like bigger swings sometimes require sometimes do require more investment and resources and and things to to launch or do you feel like you're able to 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 control that yeah no so it's a, it's a good clarification so the one week is is in one of our product areas the the, the growth product area in other areas we we operate kind of on a different time frame but it's not it's not it's not a hard and fast rule i think we've seen enough in our in our growth areas that um, when it comes to pure member growth, it, it's been velocity um, has been the name of the game, uh, while, of course, keeping a very, very close eye on the win rate. And so uh, we've been able to maintain a very healthy win rate in that area. So it's really just it, it's been a function of just how can we just do more, more tests, right? And, and push more through the pipeline because it's just, just simple math, right? If we keep the win rate and the average win going then just more tests will just get us more wins, right? But that is not true in every product area. The other product area that I was just talking about in terms of you know, a lot of the tests being flat, we were initially experimenting with a slightly lesser velocity version of that same strategy. And, and it just it, it's just not going to be the strategy we could, we, um, we uh, continue with into Q2 because we're just, we're just going to need to take bigger swings and it's going to take a little bit more time. So, it, it's there's no one size fits all here. I think uh, it really comes down to the nature of the problems you have. Some areas where it's a lot of it is about eliminating friction, like in in growth funnels and so on. Velocity is very helpful. Other areas where you're still trying to understand um, what the member opportunities, the pain points look like, velocity is not going to be your friend because then you're just running headlong into generating a lot of tests that come back flat. Right? Yeah. So a couple of questions for you here. Um, first, you've you've referred to the team as being relatively small, but you've been on some massive teams uh, between Walmart and Google and probably Weight Watchers as well. So um, at least relative to you know early stage startups. So I'm curious when you say the team is small, how how many people are actually on uh, like in, employed by the company? Uh, so, so, so on the on the corporate side, it's, it's a couple of hundred in in total. 
uh, a little bit over um, a thousand or a couple of thousand. So the the product and UX team is uh, very small. Uh, we're by my measures, uh, we're five and five. So five, five PMs and five UX designers. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so it's yeah. just good to good to get that kind of relative scope because I did yeah. see on uh, on LinkedIn a number that was north of five hundred, and so. Um, but but again, there's probably a lot of logistics people that might not be on on LinkedIn or part of the logistics uh, process there that might not be on LinkedIn. So good good to get that. Then the second piece is with so much focus on learning and velocity. How do you keep track of all that learning? How do you how do you make sure that the right people get access to the right learning? And as that repository of learning grows over time, how, how do you actually uh, make it so that you can navigate and and you're getting smarter over over time rather than just accumulating learning that then no one accesses? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a great question, and it's really where kind of process or waste of working. I usually call it waste of working because I find that a lot of people you say process and that's almost like a swear word in some some circuit site. I think I think processes as an aside has gotten a bit of a bad rep because I I'm I'm a firm believer that as humans we tend to kind of organize in some way or the other, and so whenever you come to a place where it says yeah we don't have any process because we don't like it and we don't need it. There's always a process. It's just a matter of whether you want to be in, in control of your process or not, right? Because it's just human nature. And so I think in this case, as we've tried to really identify what is the lightest weight touch kind of, of, of this process to democratize the insights, because the, I, I, it's a great call out. I, I think that if people are going to contribute ideas, they need to have access to the insights and they need to have access to it in a way that doesn't require you know, attending hours of hours of meetings. So each each of our each of our groups they will send out a, a summary on on Mondays and just says you know this is these are the tests that we're running this is what we learned last week here's what's gonna go into into testing this week and here's how we're doing against our on, ongoing accountability metrics so very lightweight very simple template um, but it gives people everything they need and we link into our our AB testing platform and so on for people who want to go go deeper in there. Then we do monthly check-ins with the leadership team on every team level where they really kind of just roll up all the insights um, and, and share what's what's on the on the roadmap they have. And then the working team will operate more on the weekly basis where the whole team get together and, and they will do rice scoring together of um, the ideas backlog. And so everyone should have, by the time an idea actually makes it into the hands of an engineer, Everyone should have seen every idea at least at least once, if not multiple mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, one of the things that I am struggling with myself there recently is kind of there's learnings on the experiment level that uh, make sense to attach to the experiments, but then what's what's the what's the high level learnings that kind of connect all the things together so that you start to see we've run a bunch of experiments in this area and none of them have really yielded great results while experiments in this area always seem to yield good results. And, and then there's a lot in between there. Uh, so I, I don't think I've necessarily cracked it yet, but I'm, I'm trying to trying to surface learnings in such a way that you, you start to see patterns and signals to help guide future experimentation um, but yeah, do you have anything like that, 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 uh, kind of starts to give you the high level patterns? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, we, 
when we do the, the all hands we do quarterly is a good example where that that's a really a good cadence i think as a product team where you should you should take it's good forcing function for you to take a step back and and take a look at your strategy documents and see was there something we learned that that you know should have us pivoting as we're heading into a new quarter right or did we learn something as fundamental as do we, need, do we need, even need to update our vision or, or and our North Star that we're working towards, right? And that, those should be more rare, but but they do happen, right? So I think doing that at, at, on a periodic basis, I think once a quarter on on a more strategic level, if it, if it causes you to pivot how what you're focusing on and how you're executing, which you know, I, gave, I gave that example around the, the flat tests. And... Um, um then in, in general just being very open uh with yourselves right that every single test can can change the the backlog and and i think as an aside that that was also a learning experience for the team coming in um because i've also tried to eradicate the term roadmap um which i'm also i know i come across this very very much a stickler for terms but I find that when people talk about roadmaps, they expect that, okay, everything is like predetermined. It's like a waterfall <laughs> concept, right? Yeah. Where everything's figured out. And and I've said, look, yeah, I can come in. I can tell you what I think we're going to do for the next three months, but I'm very likely to come back next week and I will tell you a whole different story. So, you know, I'm happy to have that conversation, but I don't think it's a good use of anyone's time. So we we talk about backlogs and people are, you know, it's a shocking concept, you know, getting accustomed to some of the fundamental agile principles that there's a backlog and, and everything is subject to change if we learn something that in, invalidates our previous hypothesis, right? Yeah. One more quick question, Ethan, and then uh, then I'll let you take us home. <laughs> I'll be all out of questions at that point. Of course, I, I say that in my roadmap of questions, there'll be probably six more that'll come from your answer. But um, the when you when you talk about scoring ideas in the backlog, uh, how much, how much sort of pre-experiment data analysis are you doing to help guide some of that score? Are you doing any, or uh, like at what point is it sort of paralysis by analysis, doing too much data analysis versus versus just like uh, the test is going to give us the most important data? So uh, I'm curious how how you how you think through that. Yeah. No, so 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 we use we use the rice scoring framework, right? So reach multiplied by impact, multiplied by by confidence, divided by by effort, and and I like that. There's many different prioritization frameworks. They all have merits, but I like it because it, it bakes in a confidence score, um, which really goes hand in hand with your your impact estimate. So really, the way we do it is that whenever someone submits an idea, and as I said, it could be anyone within the company, we encourage people to give as much context as they have, right? Some people will just submit an idea, move one-liner. Some people will include competitive examples and data and whatever have you, right? And that just really then shows up when we do the rice scoring, it shows up in your confidence score. And um, so we, we try to make sure that we don't place a, a very strict onus on, on, because we want the ideas, right? We don't need perfect ideas, we need ideas. And then when we do the rice scoring, if it turns out that it's something that has a high reach times impact product, but maybe low confidence, um, then that's a good opportunity to say, well, um, this idea is not ready to, to go into the next stage for engineering yet, but this has potential. So let's go off and do some more research, look at competitive examples, gather some more data to try to bring our confidence score up and see if the reach and impact still holds, right? So it's really about in that case, just, you know, you see, you see the promise of the idea, and you just graduate it to the next 
tiny more step forward of, of additional investment, right? And that's how we really think about the, the life of an idea for everything we do, that it's really just about having the, an idea jump through various gates. And if it keeps surviving, you move it on to the next side, but otherwise you should be really ruthless to your own ideas as well and say, look, this just doesn't hold water. Let's not waste our time here. Let's put it back on the backlog or whatever we need to, to see if it might mature for a later stage and, and move on to the next idea. Yeah. All right, Ethan, you're up. <laughs> well, uh, Sean thinks I'm going to hit us with our final question, but I actually, there's one question I wanted to uh, to ask you about. Um, we'll have to keep it brief, but it was something you and I chatted about a little bit. Um, and I just thought it was, it was super interesting for our audience, but um, you mentioned your background, I think at eBay, uh, with where you're uh, really focused on accessibility, um, which is something that most companies don't have a team for. They don't have anyone des- you know dedicated to it. In fact, I know at companies I worked at, it was an afterthought when we were at risk of violating some some uh, some code or something. Um, but accessibility and design is really important and and interesting. And I just I, I wanted to get your just if you could just tell our audience just a little bit about why that was important in your own personal growth and what it's taught you and how you use those learnings today. Um, just if you'd give us a minute of that, I thought it'd be interesting before we do give you our wrap up question. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Yeah. And so, so kind of the passion was really awakened. Um, I, I was reading some research papers in the early stages of accessibility as a product area. And I actually ended up picking it as my my thesis topic. So I was working with kids K through six that had at least one special access need, if not multiple. So blind or deaf blind, whatever have you. And, and just seeing the challenges that they were presented with, with the, but the, the, the just uh, the positive outlook that they had on life and how they took on challenges, I was hooked. Right, and that's just been reinforced throughout my career as I worked on accessibility, both at Google and and at eBay. I handed off reins there and really. Um, you know, now serve more as kind of an executive sponsor or, or mentor for the accessibility program that inevitably will be made up by a vastly understaffed group of very passionate individuals that are trying to roll a massive boulder uphill, right? Because it usually just comes down to knowledge, right? Most companies do not intentionally make it hard for people, you know, who rely on screen readers and what have you to access their tools. It's just that they don't know that they're breaking all these things, right? So I've spent a lot of my time uh, and really trying to figure out processes where you can balance the investment because the the flip side of this is, yes, it's the right thing to do. Yes, there are very real legal requirements around it. Um, but but at the end of the day, this is not a growth area where, you know, if you're looking to add another million of users, accessibility is not going to be the path. So how do you make sure that you can still do the right thing because it's so important to do because it's disproportionately important, impactful to each of these individuals, but you, you right-size the investment so that it's actually something that the company can take on, right? Because if you ask for too much, Oftentimes, at some point, you'll you'll get the hand and say like, "Oh, this is getting a bit too expensive, and we have real OKRs that we need to deliver on." So please, please go away and don't talk about this for a while. Right? Very cool. Well, thank you for that. Uh, all right, Sean, should uh, you want? Would you like to ask the, our final question today? Sure, happy to. So, Janos, uh, the uh, when you think about particularly at Thrive, but you can you can take a bit back further back if you want to, because I know it's been less than a year you've been there. Um, 
when you look back, at least over the last few years, what, what's the thing that you feel like you understand about growth now better than, than maybe you understood a few years ago? Like one, one thing that's a really important understanding that you've developed. Yeah, I, I think that if I were to say the one thing, um, and we talked a little bit about this, and that is, that is really just that the velocity matters. I think that I, ideas um, are, I wouldn't say they're easy because um, the, the team works really hard, but ideas are plentiful. And there are tons of examples of, of lots of competitors that do all kinds of stuff, right? So getting ideas into the backlog is it is not quite as hard. At least we haven't come up on it yet. But being able to execute with velocity and, and maintain the quality of those ideas so that you maintain the win rate. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, that we have it figured out. I certainly not. And I'm I'm still fairly new to the game. But just the simplicity of of thinking about it that way, that you're looking at, you know, velocity times your win rate, times your average impact. And if you just keep doing that and you're maintaining especially an eye on that win rate you will drive growth, right? Um, and in some cases you need to kind of poke the bear and you need to do something to force yourself out of a, a local maxima. So you're not just doing small incremental things, but you're also willing to make some big leaps and try something radical from time to time. But I think that that's been one of the most powerful insights to me that, you know, this this has really been transformational at, at Thrive to, to move and go from a velocity that was maybe, you know, in the single digits for a quarter and, and infusing talent and, and, and people and, and being able to test, you know, dozens and, and, you know, hopefully even more in the future of ideas and, and continuing to see a consistent win right there. It's been, it's been so simple and so powerful. I love it. I love that formula too. Velocity times win rate times average uh, impact gives you your, your growth rate. Is that, is that something that you, I picked up somewhere else, or did you just come up with that now? Or <laughs> no, no, no. I can't credit myself for that. That's okay. uh, that. That comes from from my so from many of my readings. So okay, yeah. yeah. But it's one that. of those things where I was like, this makes so much sense. I can't wait to try it. Yeah, and, and I tried it, and 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 you know, been fortunate. The company's been been open to just kind of run with a lot of these, you know. Semi-crazy ideas on the surface. Right? Yeah, I've I've often said you know your success is a function of your uh, quantity of ideas and your quality of ideas, but that this is way more specific with that formula. So I, I love that. Um, we'll have to we'll have to track who who uh, who first mentioned that one. But um, it's been super exciting having you on the show today. And uh, I don't know, Ethan, you have some some key takeaways you want to share. Well, I think it goes to Jonas. I think you really brought a lot of, you know, shined a really good light on just the importance of scientific rigor. Um, but I think you've also pointed out that within that scientific rigor, there is the reality of every day, and you have to deal with 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 those realities. Um, but I think the attention to the scientific re, uh, rigor is what what really drives that that long term success. So that was helpful for me and. Um, uh, while I think there's no one size fits all, as you've said, and and that's always, you know, you always have to adapt your growth process to the situation you're in. Um, I do think you, you've created, you know, you've shared with us some really sort of, you know, important principles that should underpin every process. So, um, yeah, it's been super helpful and I, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I also think uh, you're that being careful with the words that you use um, is is interesting. It's important to be careful with the words that you use. Like, for example, when you talked about, we don't talk about winners and losers, it's, it's, it's winners and, and learnings. Um, but, but even with your, your hesitancy around 
process as a word because process sounds heavy and can slow you down. I do. Yeah, I break my learnings into customer learnings and process learnings when I, I we just had our, our monthly meeting. And that's that was the organization structure that I that I used. And um, but I do think I think process is important here. And um, and the benefit of process is that when you document it and you think about ways to improve it, particularly around how do we around that formula that you laid out. You know, how, how do we improve that velocity? Velocity is the thing you can control the most there. The win rate and the average impact is a lot harder to control, but at least you can control the, the velocity. And, and hopefully over time, you're getting smarter with the win rate and average impact. So um, I think a lot, of really good, really, a lot of really good things that you've talked about here today. And uh, I'm, I'm excited personally to go back and re-listen to it. So thank you so much, Jonas. Any, any last words before we wrap up? No, I, I think also what, what's been gratifying with this process that I that we talked about here is that it's just kind of faded into the rafters, into the background, and and I can I can tell the team is having a lot of fun, which to me is what it's all about at the end of the day, right? I always kind of look at things as we we take our work seriously, but ourselves less so, and and the team has taken so well to this very kind of high velocity that could be stressful and and, and a lot of pressure. In the process it's an important company goal uh but but that's just there and it just it just happens and, and i think that's a testament to to the team and and how well this is working and they're just having fun they're talking about the ideas and the customer problems and that's how they're spending their time they're never talking about oh you know what are we doing next and how are we going to jump this through the different steps that that just happens right which is which is extremely gratifying to see yeah and having the worthy mission that you do i think um also helps to protect against that burnout. So keeping it fun, keeping the velocity of learning up, but then having a, a really strong why, um, those two things together, I, I think uh, keep keep people engaged and excited. So it's a it's a fun area that we we all work in, and uh, it's it's important to uh, not have it be as stressful as it can be, and and have it be enjoyable. So um, it's it's great to see you doing that, and um, I'm I'm personally looking forward to seeing you get a lot more success because it it it, it seems what you're working on is super important. So thank you for. Thank you for sharing the story with us today. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks a lot. And uh, for everyone tuning in, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.